If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 17, <clears throat> beginning in verse 8, going all the way to the end of chapter 18. So we've got some ground to cover. Let me get started by, I was laid out this week, and so I had a little bit of time to catch up or watch movies I hadn't seen in a while, so I watched a Braveheart for the first time in a long, long time. How many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? Yeah, one of my all-time favorite movies. If you've ever seen it or you've seen any like ancient war movie, you'll remember that um, you know, they have all kinds of flags and banners that are kind of dividing up the army into sections, different divisions, and telling them you know, to move forward or uh, move backward or whatever. And, and the soldiers look to those banners. They look to those flags for direction, for guidance, even for comfort at times. Um, and it gives them all of this. Well, in the text that we've got before us today, we have that famous passage, if you've got a background in, in the church at all, where God is described as our banner. It says, the Lord is my banner. And the idea there is that He is our direction giver. He is the one that we unite underneath. He tells us what to do. He guides us. But not only is He a banner in that sense of the word, He's also a banner in the sense of like what Baylor will be hanging from their basketball arena. It says champion, because they've won the tournament. God is our champion. He has won for us. He has already won. He's already gained the victory. So not only is He our guidance, our you know, direction giver, He is also our victory. He is our champion. It is all of this, that this idea of the Lord is my banner, that kind of is on you know, what, what is being spoken of here when the Lord Yahweh is being described that way. And so this morning what we're going to do is like we're going to see through this you know, text how Moses builds an altar, makes this declaration that the Lord is my banner. And he makes this declaration on the heels of the first ever like, military battle that Israel has. And that's what's at the end of chapter 17. But then that, that, that framework of the Lord is my banner really can kind of serve us to frame what happens in all of chapter 18 as well. And so that's how we're going to use it today. We're going to, with the Lord is my banner, like I want that to be what you go home with, what you walk away with, that like personally, not just the Lord was their banner, but the Lord is, and the Lord is our banner, but also the Lord is my banner. I want you to internalize that. And so let's just do this. Let's, let's say that together. Okay? We're going to say, the Lord is my banner. All right, let's say that. The Lord is my banner. I want you to feel that and know that as you go home. He is your direction giver. He is the one who is over you, your rallying point, your victory, all of this. The Lord is my banner. And then we'll let that kind of frame out the rest of the sermon and look at four practical implications of that. Like in day in, day out life, we'll see how it applied here in the nation of Israel and then how that applies in our lives as well. And so Exodus chapter 17, just kind of setting the table here. The people have left. Israel's been led out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. They're on their way, not just to the promised land, but first stopping at Mount Sinai, just as God had promised when He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And He said, this will be a sign to you. You will come and worship Me on this very mountain. So like they're there. 
like right on the cusp. Next, next week, chapter 19, like they officially enter in. Then we get chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up and down, up and down, up and down, gets the Ten Commandments. So we're about right there, but they're right there at Mount Sinai. And on their way, they've had internal struggles. They've faced all kinds of various trials, grumbling against their leaders, grumbling against God. No water, no food, no water. God replies with grace. And today, here at the end of chapter 17, we see an external threat. They're attacked by some long-term descendants of Esau. Jacob and Esau, still at it. Still at it today. And so look at it with me. Chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, now this is our first mention of Joshua. He will be a major player throughout the rest of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Torah. He, along with Caleb, will be the spies that are faithful and go in, spout the land, and then Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to. Joshua does. But right now, this is just the first time we see his name mentioned. So Moses, they're getting attacked. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, like Amalek raised a fist against the throne of the Lord. And the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now just to kind of explain that real quick, you're like, man, God seems pretty wrathful here. What these guys were doing were attacking like the stragglers at the back of the caravan and just having sport by butchering moms with young children, the elderly, the sick, and just butchering, spearing them and having fun with that. And the Lord is a Lord of justice. And we've talked about so much, like the book of Exodus declares to us, chapter 34, verse 6, that the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. But then the very next verse says, but he will by no wise leave the guilty unpunished. And so this is very much a Nazi moment. Like God would not be good if he did not bring justice to those who have been oppressed, to those who have received injustice. And so God is doing that. And we see it play out through the rest of the Old Testament. Saul, David, even down to Queen Esther, Mordecai, Haman. Haman's a descendant of Amalek. But that's not the main point. But I had to explain that to you. The main point of this little section here is that when facing trials, threats, temptations, we are to look to our banner. All right? So number one in your notes, right? Look to 
our banner. Look to your banner. This is what we do when we face trials and threats and temptations. And, and that's really the whole deal, like what the whole deal with Moses holding his staff up and the guys helping him hold it up when his arms get tired. That's really what it's all about. That the Israelites can look up and see practically that God is with them. All right, we're going to develop that thought in just a moment, but I just kind of want to set it right there for just a minute and, and we'll come back to it. Because there's something here we need to see right away that, that, that is different from what we've seen thus far in Exodus. Because what we see right here is God is calling them to like, be active in their own defense. This is unlike what we've seen thus far. Like If you remember at the Red Sea, He tells them, don't do anything, I will do it all. And so the Red Sea, if you remember, what happens there is there's a picture of salvation. That we are saved by God's work alone, nothing of ourselves. And so at the Red Sea, don't do anything. I will provide salvation. But now they've crossed over and they're in the wilderness and it's more of a picture of sanctification. And in our sanctification, we do have a part to play. And that's what we're seeing here. And so he's calling them, hey, you've got a part to play here. And so you've got this, you know, beautiful balance here between divine sovereignty, because it's, you know, Moses has got to hold the staff up for them to have victory, and yet also human responsibility to do what they've been asked to do. And so as one guy put it that I read this week, not one, look at this balance, not one Amalekite died that day on the battlefield except an Israelite slew him. Not one died unless an Israelite ran him through with a sword. Yet, not one Amalekite would die unless God Himself gave Israel the victory. If the staff was not in the air, they were not winning, right? And so here's something we need to understand. Confidence in the divine omnipotence and omniscience of God does not negate our call to do what God has called us to do. It does not negate that there are things that we are supposed to do. I remember early on uh, in you know, being a pastor. My first six months of being a pastor were insane, right? Many of you know a lot of that, but they were insane in multiple ways, and one of them had to do with a heresy. We had a guy in the church who said, I, I think the Lord has called me to, to not work. To just trust Him to provide. And He will just give me all I need. And, and, and I mean, I've got faith. i got more faith than you because I trust God to provide. Brother, that is insane. And untrue and heretical. And the Bible is clear that a person who can, a man who can and just refuses to work, should not eat. And that to not provide for your family like that is worse than being an unbeliever. And so, yes, like we are to look to our banner. The Lord will provide. He will deliver. He is our victory. He is our direction giver. He is our rallying point. He will do all of this. But that is not a reason. That is not, cannot be used as an excuse to just be lazy and not do your part. Now, we are to look to our banner and go to work. Like, 
we look to our banner and we're encouraged in our work. We're to look to our banner and do what He's called to step up to the line, to toe the line, to do what we are called to do. But nevertheless, we always must remember that it is God who gives the victory. Again, that's the whole point of Moses holding up the staff and Aaron and her coming up underneath him. And so if you, you know, grew up in Sunday school and they pulled out the felt board and taught you this Sunday school lesson, they probably told you it was about small group ministry or intercessory prayer. Listen, I love small group ministry and I love intercessory prayer. Good things. Not what this is about at all. What this is telling us is that it is the Lord who gives victory. It's not the people. It's not Moses. Moses can't even hold the stick up, right? And I don't blame him. Have you ever tried to put up a ceiling fan? Yeah. You're going to be tired in two minutes, and tomorrow you're going to have a crick in your neck. It's, it's hard, so he can't even hold the stick up. He's got to have people come help him, which again just shows, man, it's not even Moses who's saving us. It's God, and the staff is a representation of God's presence and power. The staff has no intrinsic power. This isn't Gandalf, right? Half of y'all know what I'm talking about, and half of you don't. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien, read it. But it's a sign of his, it's a symbol of his power and God's presence with them. Because you, I mean, you think about the whole book of Exodus. You look through, think back so far. The staff, that symbol, right? Nile River, blood, come to the Exodus, I mean, come to the Red Sea, divides, strikes the rock, water, and here held up and brings defeat upon the Amalekites. And so the point is that it is God who is fighting for them. Yes, they have their job to do. But it is God who is bringing this together for them. And since it's the Lord who gives us victory, that means that we should not give in to despair when things look bad because it's the Lord who gives victory. And we should not grow cocky when things are going well because it's the Lord who gives victory, not you and I. And so as you labor and fight down here on this battlefield with sin and with the temptations of the world, look to your banner. And listen, look to a greater hill than the one that Moses stood on. Look to the hill where our standard was lifted up on a cross. He is our banner. Look to His life, His death, His resurrection. And so yeah, let us work diligently Using the means that the Word gives us. Let us work hard at holiness. Obeying. But let's never rest on our ability to obey. Our diligence to have our quiet times. It is the Lord who is our victory. Who is our banner. Look to our banner. When you face trials, temptations, struggles. Alright, that's number one. Look to our banner. Changing gears a little bit, we get to number two. Number two is this. Speak of your banner. Speak of your banner. Like, speak up. Talk about him. And so, like, when you get into chapter 18, what we've got here is we've got kind of a family reunion. Moses apparently had sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to Zipporah's daddy named Jethro. We've met him. His name's also Ruel. He's a priest of Midian. We met him back in chapter 2 
But here he changed his name to Jethro. I think Rule is a better name than Jethro, but that's just me. But he changed his name to Jethro, and he's bringing the kids back, and he's bringing Zipporah back, and they're going to have a bit of a family reunion. But when they get together, and after they've you know, embraced and, and, and you know, seen each other for the first time, Moses and Jethro go and have a little talk. And I want you to watch what, Jeth- what, what Moses says to him. This idea of speaking of our banner. And so look at verse 1 with me. Jethro, the priest of Midian, and so he's a pagan, okay? Not a God-fearer. I'm sure he's heard of Yahweh. And obviously we're going to see he has, but not a worshiper. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people. So he's heard about it. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so those two names that are mentioned there, Gershom, sojourner, Eleazar, God is my help, those two names, like that, that's who Moses is. He's a sojourner, and God is his help. But it's not only who Moses is, it's who the Israelites are. But it's not only who the Israelites are, it's who we are. We are sojourners, and God is our help. This world is not our home. We are headed towards the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. That is home. So we are aliens and strangers in this land. We are sojourners and God is our help. Look at verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So like they're there. They've come to Sinai. Oreb. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And so here's their conversation, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And so, I want you to see this. Verse 1, Jethro's got some idea of what's happened. He's heard rumors about this God of the Israelites who has brought plagues down, divided seas, provided all these. He's heard rumors from other tribes that have heard of this. It's gotten to him, but now he's hearing firsthand from Moses. And Moses tells him the story, and there's, he speaks of it in kind of two big parts. The first thing he does, first of all, is he tells Jethro of the good news of God's salvation. And so you look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And so Moses is sharing his testimony with his father-in-law. Here is what the Lord has done for me. He's sharing the good news. He's sharing the gospel. The Lord has overcome our enemies. He's brought us deliverance and redemption. But He doesn't stop there. Notice He keeps going and He includes the cost of following the Lord. And so you keep reading in verse 8. 
Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, comma, now, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And so he's not sugarcoating this. He's not, he's not just saying, hey, you know, come to Jesus and everything's going to be perfect for you. Because that's a lie, right? That's called the prosperity gospel and it's a lie. Like if you're, your, your best life isn't now, it's then. Our best life someday in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our best life. In this world, it is going to be hard. We're forgiven. We're given redemption. We're given deliverance. But it will be hard in this life. Being, there's a cost to following Christ. And yet, it keeps going, and how the Lord had delivered them. So there are hardships we will face, and yet the Lord will meet our hardships. He will provide in every trial and circumstance and provide every need according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so what we see here is we see like the sharing of the gospel 101. This is evangelism 101. So first you speak like of the gospel. It's our responsibility to share the good news. Because the gospel is good news. It is good news. And so it is not a club to beat people with. It's not an argument to win. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Christ must draw them. And so it's something to be delivered gently with respect. And it's not bait and switch. It's not trust Jesus and all your problems will go away. No, it's truthful. It will be hard. And yet, the Lord will be with us. And as hard as it will be inwardly as we face sin and battle our own um, sinfulness and our selfishness and you know, we fight against the temptations of the world and wrong thinking that we have and it's got to be rewired out of us. As hard as it will be inwardly and as hard as it will be externally as we face ridicule and cancel by the culture and we're all bigots. God will be faithful to meet our every need as we continue to march towards the promised land. And He will build His church even as the kingdoms of the world crumble. Roman Empire. I mean, thousands of years. Like, God's plan. He will build His church. Period. And so listen, I just want to ask you, I mean, because I, I, know, I know COVID has made it hard. No COVID has made it hard. It's made things different. Didn't want, you don't want to get together with people and things like that. And so I don't want to give a drive-by guilting, but I do want you to think for a minute. Moses shares with Jethro here. Christ has commanded us to make disciples. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And again, I'm not talking like a bait and switch, a one-off, beating them over the head, trying to win an argument, seeking to persuade someone of the truth of the gospel, that the Lord might stir in them and draw them. When was the last time? When was the last time you invited someone to church? And again, I get COVID early on. I didn't want to invite someone to church. I was like, I don't know if they have COVID or not, right? Because early on, we were all freaked out, like... 
When was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time you shared the gospel? We provide Christianity Explained. We got tons of copies back there, which is just kind of a guide for sharing the gospel with someone. If you're scared to do it, don't know how to do it, it literally says, write this. Like your cheat sheet are little note cards you get to have. Um, Jesus has authority over demons, over everything. We're called. Let us do this. Let's speak. I mean, you speak of your family, you speak of your kids, you speak of your job, you speak of your hobbies, you speak of these things that you like. Speak of your banner, the one who is for you, direction giver, savior, the one who gave his life for you. And offer salvation to anyone who will believe. And so you're here on this earth to help people know this one so that they might believe. And so it is God who saved Jethro here. But it was Moses who had to speak up, open his mouth. Speak of your banner. And look here at Jethro's response, verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced. For all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that He had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord. That's all caps. This is the covenant name of God. Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He keeps saying this because he's baffled by the fact that the world's superpower has been undone by a bunch of slaves with like no military training and who did nothing. And so, verse 11, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair, they, the false gods, dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so what happened is Jethro has been converted. This is a picture of salvation. And he has a covenant meal. He offers sacrifices. And again, all because Moses spoke up and shared his story. Share your story. Speak of your banner. Here's what the Word has done in my life. Speak of your banner. And then we come to verse 13. It just kind of turns weird. It just kind of turns weird. We've got all this going on, and then all of a sudden, Jethro just becomes like an organizational guru and just starts talking about organization. But then I think it makes sense because if you think back Think about Moses and who he was. Like the, when we first meet Moses as an adult, not as the baby in the basket, but when we first meet him at, as an adult, he's arrogant, cocky, confident, full of himself, and thinks that he can handle everything himself. So he has some premonition that he's to be the deliverer of Israel, so he goes out and tries to do it in his own strength, and it goes bad. He murders a dude, gets freaked out, and runs away into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, for the next 40 years, God is breaking him of his cockiness, of his self-assured, I can do it, I can handle it all by myself. Yet, still a little bit of that residue remains. So he's trying to do all kinds of things on his own. 
just as an aside, friend, as you are battling sin, be encouraged. Sometimes you'll find a little bit of residue of your past silliness. God's still at work. You'll see it at times. Keep going. Keep going. And so that's who Moses is. And so he's been doing this. His residue's still there. And so Moses is still with that residue. Kind of thinks he can handle it. He can do everything. And so it says in verse 13 that he's been judging the people. And the people are standing around Moses from morning till evening. And like many good father-in-laws before and since, Jethro gives him a little bit of advice. And so he says to him basically like, wow, Moses, look at you. And you're doing it all. That's stupid. What, what are you doing, buddy? Don't do that. This is, in fact, this is not good. Here's probably, I mean, hypothetically speaking, you might want to consider something like this. And what Jethro gives him is kind of his ancient management consultant is partly an economic division of labor partly a judicial system with Moses as chief justice, but most plainly it was a plan for providing pastoral care to the people of God. And so listen to me. This is not a word against not working hard. We are called to work hard as unto the Lord. The problem comes when we try to carry burdens that are bigger than us and that God never asked us to carry in the first place. God does not intend for us to go it alone. He does not intend for us to do all the work for ourselves. And that's part of why we have a body of Christ. We bear one another's burdens. We are to be dependent on one another. And so number three in your notes, just kind of big principle, write this. Work together under the banner. Like the, the Lord is our King, He is our Sovereign, He is over us, and we are to work together under the banner. And particularly like in ministry. Like we're to do this in all realms of our life, our family, our work, our hobbies, our churches, it's, it is folly for us to think we can do everything by ourselves. And particularly in the church, ministry should never be a one-man or a one-woman show. It's not good for us to try to do all of God's work on our own. Romans 12, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And so sometimes we need to even, you know, not just share, but give up leadership to help others develop and raise up utilize their gifts and so for example when sunday school starts back up in august lord willing starts back up in august many of our teachers have been teaching for years some of you since the beginning of the church thank you for that thank you you've worked hard at the same time over the years the lord has blessed us with many other teachers and seen others developed within the church, maybe it's time for them to have a chance. Maybe it's time for us to share the load a little bit and for them to have a time. And so current teachers, just kind of tuck that away in the back of your head a little bit. Think about that. Maybe it's time to let someone else have a turn. 
But back to the point here with Moses, again, it is unwise to think that we can always handle more and more work or ministry. This is harmful to you. This is harmful to others. And so let me just talk like work for a minute, like, you know, secular work, if you want to put it there. I'm not a big fan of secular sacred divide. Everything is sacred when done for the Lord. Everything is part of his calling. We have different callings, but one's not better than the other. But in work, like, if you are always, this is a principle for life even, if you are always saying yes to everyone who asks you to do something, yes, I can do that. Oh yeah, I can take that. Yes, I can do more. 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 Listen, you may be thinking that you're doing a good thing, but you're not. Because if you say yes to everything, you automatically are saying no to something. You're saying no, perhaps, to your family. You're saying no, perhaps, to your quiet times and your devotion to the Lord. You're saying no to gathering in community. You're saying no to, you know, all, all, you're saying no to something. Or maybe you're like, well, I won't rob from my kids. I won't rob from the church. So what you rob now is by saying yes to more and more. You're robbing work because if you're saying yes to everything, you're saying no to quality and consistency and so now things start falling through the cracks and you're running around trying to keep the plates spinning as they're wobbling and you're just running to the next wobble and the next wobble and invariably things start falling and crashing around you it is not wise to always say yes sometimes the most loving thing you can say is no or i i can't do that but i'll help you find someone who can and so Jethro here, I mean, specifically to the church now, leadership kind of in the church and the people of God, he's saying, listen, shepherding here, Moses, this shepherding that you're trying to do for all the people, you, you've got to divide this up, buddy. And so he says, verse 21, look at it. Tells him, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. This is very similar to the New Testament. With deacons, Acts chapter 7, and deacons and elders, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1. Look for men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands or hundreds or fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they can decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will be, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, so it's good for you. You will be able to endure. You're not going to burn out. And all this people also will go to their place in peace, not frazzled because things aren't happening the way they should. And so again, folks, this is super similar to the commands of given to leadership and shepherding in the New Testament, particularly to elders. And Moses says they, they must be mature, and you get a whole list in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 of the marks of an elder. And he's doing all this, and all of those marks, all of that is for your, for the congregation, for the people of God's benefit. Benefit. This is the point that the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 13. 
verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so it's all about the benefit of the congregation. And so like part of your job is to obey and submit to the elders of the church insofar as they are, or, or another church, if you're a member of another church, insofar as they are leading biblically. Now, not necessarily according to your preference, but biblically. If they're not leading biblically, you don't only not follow them, you fire them. You trust your elders or you get new elders. That's kind of the principle of Scripture. Trust them or get new ones. But we're not to be like the Israelites who just constantly complain and grumble against their leaders even as their leaders are seeking to lead them to the promised land even as the leaders are seeking to obey, even as the leaders are seeking to expose an error and teach and change in love, trying to correct with love. And so that's kind of the congregation's job with elders to obey and submit in if they are leading biblically. But then on an elder side of the things, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. As an elder, that is what keeps me up at night. That I will give an account. There are certain things I can't control of your lives. The elder can't control of your lives. But we are to seek to have you transformed insofar as we can by the Holy Spirit to the things of God. That's kind of our job, to watch over your souls. And so let me just camp out here for just a second and say something that is absolutely true, but forgotten and maybe not popular because none of us like to talk about authority, right? We're rebels, right? What comes out of the mouths of your elders, whether in this church or another church, as they stand behind this holy desk, whether it's me or somebody else, what comes out of their mouths should be far more shaping in your life than anything that comes out of the mouth of your favorite blocker or media personality. You should be, in other words, far more shaped in your worldviews, beliefs, and how that applies to your life by the men that God has put in your life over you spiritually than you are by a pastor, celebrity pastor of another church, or any type of, God forbid, right-wing or left-wing propagandist who does not give a rip about your soul, or the souls of your neighbors, or the things of God. We must work together big picture, under the banner of our Lord, for He is our King. And so we must do that by relying on one another and learning to not try to take on everything, bearing burdens as a church body. 
And we must do this by trusting God's leadership structure in the church and submitting to proper spiritual authority. All right? So I told you it was a little weird there with his guru-ness, but it's actually really applicable to the New Testament church. But then finally and fourthly and quickly, there's kind of a big picture, I think, over all of this from, chap- from verse 8 of 17 all the way through chapter uh, 18 that I kind of think that, that we see. And here's what it is. Number four, find unity in our banner. Find unity in our banner. Because like, that's what you see happen here for Jethro. Like We see two Gentiles in this story. You've got Amalek and his people, and you've got Jethro. And Amalek, like, I mean, these guys have two very different responses. Amalek, in, you know, there at the end of 17, raises his fist against God's throne. He attacks, he rebels. But Jethro, Gentile also, he repents and believes. And then you'll remember, he sacrifices, he has a covenant meal, he becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. He is converted and united with the people of Israel under under the shared faith in the one true God. Unity is found in the one true God by this pagan guy and the people of Israelite. They find unity in their shared faith. And this continues to today. It's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. God bringing people of diverse backgrounds into unity under His banner. Finding unity in Christ. Because as we sang in the very first song, that is where our unity exists alone. The The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. The church's one foundation. We have no other foundation. One foundation. And so I'm going to make a statement that's going to be startling, but it's true. I am not at all, just for the record on the video and everything, a fan of socialism or communism. I am a capitalist, okay? So calm down. But you and I have far more in common with a communist Chinese Christian than we do with a capitalist American non-Christian. One is a brother or sister. One isn't. One is a member of the kingdom that we will spend eternity with in heaven. One isn't. One is of the kingdom of Amalek. And one is of the kingdom of God. The church is to be very much like a Titans game. I've told you this before. Right? The Titans, you go to a Titans game, and you've got people from every walk of life, right? Amen? If you've been there, every walk of life. But they're unified under one purpose. Cheering, maybe worshiping, the Titans. (laughs) But they're united under that. From every walk of life. That's to be the church. United and made new. The Titans aren't to transform us. God does transform us. I get that. To the illustration can break down. But still, united, cheering for our champion. Who is our victory? 
And so this is to be true globally and locally. And so like in this room right now, we have PhDs and we have GEDs. We have people who struggle with legalism and we have people who struggle with licentiousness. We have people who are Republicans. We have people who are Democrats. We are united in Christ. God has knit us together and our, our unity is our banner. Our unity is Christ. We've been transformed from the kingdom of the Amalekites because that's what we're born in. We're in rebellion. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so let us keep our focus there. And so as we go about life and we face trials and temptations, look to our banner and go to work. But look to our banner. Look to our deliverer. Look to our champion, our direction giver. And let us speak of our banner as we go about life. As you are going, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. And let us work together under the banner of the Lord as the people of God. We work, we care, we bear burdens. We do that together as a family. And let us find our unity as God's people in our banner and in our banner alone. The Lord is our banner. And when the roll is called up yonder, Isaiah eleven ten, in that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, who shall stand as a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. Jesus is our banner. The Lord is your banner over you. Let's say it again together. The Lord is my banner. Praise God. Let's pray. We thank you that you're our banner. You are our king, you are our deliverer, you are our direction giver, our guidance, our leadership. You reign over us. You are creator, we are creature. You are king, we are servants. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to reverse that and treat you as if you serve us. And, and think we are sovereign over our lives. That we call the shots. Humble us, Lord. That you are God. And that you are kind. You're not a malevolent sovereign. You are a gentle and lowly sovereign who loves us, cares for us, provides for us, gives direction to us in your word. And so, Father, help us to not be prideful and buck against your word. Let us be humble and receive your word. And by your spirit, change us day by day by day by day. Like water dripping on a rock over eons. It hollows that rock out. So may your word drip on our lives 
and change us bit by bit by bit to be more like Christ until the day we are with you. We love you, God. We want to be more like you. And we look forward to seeing you someday. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.